This is Dr. Nick Tiller, and you're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science podcast. What follows is an audio recording of my column, published in Skeptical Inquirer, the magazine for science and reason. For more information, visit www.skepticalinquirer.org. As with all articles in the series, a link to the original piece with its full list of references can be found in the show notes. Episode 28 Telling True Stories What can the anti-science community teach us about PSYCOM? Most readers won't be familiar with Clark Stanley, and yet, to those who lived in the Old West, he was a household name. In the ageing half of the 19th century, Stanley's theatre company was one of several that toured rural towns selling magical health elixirs. For the townsfolk, seeing a Clark Stanley convoy kicking up dust on the horizon would have been an exhilarating sight. After unloading their carts and setting up their makeshift stage, Stanley and his crew treated the crowd to a thrilling show. Acrobats flipped, magicians tricked, and mustachioed musclemen bent bars and rods. Their only job was to whip the audience into a frenzy for the main event, the medicine man. And Clark Stanley was the most famous and revered of them all. With unrivaled eloquence and charm, the self-styled rattlesnake king orated to the assembled crowd. He described how he'd lived for years with the Hopi Native American tribes, learned their secrets, was bitten by dozens of rattlesnakes rolling up his shirt sleeves and showing his scars as proof, and how he'd subsequently created his patented snake oil liniment. Our friend Joe Schwartz, director of the McGill Office for Science and Society, explains how Stanley prepared his snake oil for the captivated crowd. Quote, Stanley reached into a sack, plucked out a snake, slid it open and plunged it into boiling water. When the fat rose to the top, he skimmed it off and used it on the spot to create Stanley's snake oil. End quote. Stanley claimed that his medicine was, quote, the strongest known for pain and lameness, able to treat rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica, lame back, lumbago, toothache, sprains, and much more. Skepticism cautions us against products designed to treat multiple independent ailments. But to support his grandiose claims, Stanley delivered a theatrical performance that made the acrobats and magicians appear comparatively mundane. Posing as a doctor, he invited a volunteer on stage. The elderly and infirm patient hobbled up the wooden steps and described the nature of his sickness in explicit detail. With more than a hint of trepidation, he massaged the elixir into his aching joints and, within seconds, was miraculously transformed into a picture of youth and vitality, seemingly cured. The audience applauded and then invested. Of course, the volunteer was a plant, put there by Stanley himself and paid a meagre sum to perpetrate the ruse. Stanley operated this way relatively unchallenged for nearly two decades, until developments in analytical chemistry allowed federal authorities to test the potion. It contained mineral oil, a fatty oil believed to be beef fat, red pepper to warm the skin, and turpentine for a powerful medicinal aroma, 
but nothing that could cure injury or pain. By the time the FDA had exposed the formula as a sham, forever synonymizing snake oil with medical lies and health fraud, Stanley was an American institution. His monumental success could be boiled down to a single factor. Clark Stanley was a gifted storyteller. Humans are storytelling animals. It's how we've evolved to make sense of the world, mitigating uncertainty by superimposing stories onto our perception of reality. We've painted constellations onto the canvas of the night sky to explain the positions of celestial bodies, created tiny unmeasurable demons to rationalize sickness, and turned to gods and titans and sea serpents to explain the origin and demise of the world. Fairy tales endure, not because of their validity, but because they stir our emotions and capture our imagination. Stories are part of our DNA. Both get passed on to our children and mutate and evolve in each successive generation. Storytellers like Clark Stanley have always ruled the commercial world, spinning yarns to manipulate our feelings and direct our buying habits. I made it to my teens before my first profound experience of this. As an adolescent in the 1990s, I was obsessed with football or soccer to the American audience. As a footnote, Americans and Europeans argue for ownership over the term football. I don't feel particularly strongly one way or another, but keep in mind that the English were kicking around pigskins 300 years before Columbus even made it to America. I watched football on TV, played it with my friends in the park, and sank days into managing my own team in a popular video game. A t-shirt with the phrase, eat, sleep, football, repeat, never left my torso, and my Adidas Predators never left my feet. Why Adidas Predators? Well, at the time, every professional footballer in the world worth his salt, including legends like David Beckham, Zinedine Zidane, and Alessandro Del Piero, wore Adidas Predators on the pitch. That visibility alone made them the must-have accessory for every football-obsessed teenager on the planet. But it was more than that. In its original TV commercial, which used a tagline, 100% legal, 0% fair, a footballer wearing Predators was portrayed as having superhuman abilities. He glided effortlessly past the opposition players, slickly evading their tackles as if the ball were glued to his feet. Then, in a final moment of footballing genius, he fired the ball into the top corner of the net, the shot following an impossible arc through the air. It had always been a mystery to us how the pros curved the ball with such physics-defying ease. Now we knew. It was the rubber fins on the boot which bestowed superior grip and control over the ball. If we could only get our feet into some predators, we'd be transformed from hobbledehoys into footballing legends. Adidas sold us a tall tale, one that we swallowed hook, line, sinker, and the whole rest of the unbroken fishing rod. Actually, those boots at best raised the standard of our junior team from fourth rate to third, but it was how they made us feel that really mattered. Sporting the same gear as your heroes brought you closer to them, and maybe, just maybe, you'd capture a little of their magic as a result. That's why predators were a triumph in viral marketing, 
at a time when social media wasn't even a twinkle in the eye of a 10-year-old Mark Zuckerberg. By the time I realised the truth that nearly all those footballers had been paid to wear Predators in a vast sponsorship deal, I'd long outgrown my Predators and my obsession. I now reflect on how the deception accelerated me towards scientific scepticism. All commercial products, from cosmetics to condoms, are sold using similarly powerful imagery. The themes are easy to unpick if you look closely enough, and it's not just products, but ideas too. Storytellers excel in politics. Obama's handsome success in 2008 centred on the compelling narrative that America could overcome division and economic uncertainty if only they unified around the common cause of hope and change. This was expertly woven into Obama's personal journey and progressive values. It was a story that resonated with the majority of voters. And then in 2016, Donald Trump was elected on a much less conventional narrative, one that focused on anti-establishment ideals. His team harnessed voter discontent with traditional politics and spun Trump's lack of political experience as an asset. The campaign's centerpiece was to exploit social media and bypass traditional communication channels to foist a narrative into the hands of the voters. Randy Olson, author of Don't Be Such a Scientist, had this to say about Trump's political opponent, Hillary Clinton. Quote, Hillary is known as a brilliant policy wonk, but not a great communicator. She is basically a scientist, fairly cerebral, fairly literal-minded, not a great storyteller, Trump had a clear, simple narrative theme with greatness. Clinton had one, but her campaign staff never managed to identify it and message around it. End quote. Olson, a former marine biologist turned Hollywood filmmaker, continues to describe how successful narratives, whether they're in commerce or politics, engage the public and parts of the body beyond the reach of meagre facts and figures. Data stimulate the mind. But it's crucial to stimulate the heart by triggering emotions, the gut by appealing to instinct and intuition, and, if possible, the genitals by using sex appeal. For scientists, that last one is a tough nut to crack. These domains are so crucial in decision-making that the Oxford Dictionaries made post-truth, a term embodying the idea that a type of success in the modern world can be achieved by ignoring objective facts and even turning them on their heads, It's word of the year in 2016. So, how do you convince someone that a sea serpent prophesizes the end of the world? That the juice of a snake can cure disease? That a political rival is a crook? Or that a pair of expensive sneakers will transform you overnight from an amateur athlete to a professional superstar? You tell them a story. People hostile to science know this. For decades, anti-science movements have repurposed the marketing tools of commerce and politics to disseminate their messages. In turn, they've transformed a disorganized sea of alternative facts into a sophisticated, well-structured disinformation campaign. And the further beyond the fringe anti-science rhetoric is able to reach, the more difficult it becomes to contain. The narratives are well-trodden, sowing the seeds of discontent with established medicine, spreading fear and distrust of modern science, 
and framing any opposing argument as political conspiracy. The motor that drives any classic story is the tension created between the agonist and their struggle against antagonistic external forces. In his book, Story, Robert McGee calls this traditional filmmaking style arc plot. Olsen describes it like this, quote, Classical design, meaning all the standard things we think of. A hero sets out on a journey to combat the forces of evil, is faced with challenges, has lots of ups and downs, and eventually succeeds, concluding the story with a happy ending. End quote. The anti-vaccine movement has expertly framed Big Pharma as the antagonist in their classic Hollywood movie, accusing it of suppressing vaccine side effects and placing profits above consumer safety. The linchpin of the movement is Andrew Wakefield's 1998 study claiming that the MMR vaccine causes autism. The study was retracted on the grounds of data falsification, but for many anti-vaxxers, this only bolstered distrust of mainstream scientific consensus. The study and its critics mirror the age-old saga of good versus evil, and the script was wholeheartedly endorsed by celebrities including Jenny McCarthy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and Jim Carrey. A second footnote on McCarthy, a former Playboy model, she became the face of the anti-vaccine movement around 2007. She went public with an emotional story of her son developing autism after receiving the measles vaccine. The powerful narrative pits her autistic son against a pharmaceutical industry characterised by insatiable greed. Those hostile to science understand that, for most people, Narrative and visibility trump data, style over substance. It's a lesson in how science messaging needs to evolve. Our science fraternity has made a home of the brain. We pride ourselves on our intellectual rigour and diligence to the facts because we understand that empirical truths are the most accurate way of describing a materialistic world. It's a process adapted from the teachings of Socrates. Contrive hypotheses, observe the natural world, and deduct laws about how it might function. When it comes to making science accessible, engaging, and understandable for the broadest audience, rank cerebralism must not be our only tool. In fact, it may do more harm than good. The knowledge deficit model is the flawed idea that a lack of knowledge is the reason why swathes of the public don't embrace science and that the solution is for experts to impart yet more information. The people supporting such a model are convinced that owning the facts and having right on their side are enough to change people's behaviours, improve public health and influence policy. They aren't. I'm reminded of a televised debate on climate change hosted by the Australian Broadcasting Company in 2016, among the panellists were English physicist Brian Cox, no, not the actor, and well-known climate change denier Malcolm Roberts. Now, Roberts had attempted to refute the global warming hypothesis by erroneously claiming that global temperatures hadn't budged in over two decades. In his now famous rebuttal, Cox held up a graph that he'd printed on a piece of A4 paper. We've had a pause in, in this so-called warming for now 21 years, depends how you measure it, 21 years. And I'm absolutely stunned that someone who is inspired by Richard Feynman, 
a fantastic scientist who believes in empirical evidence is quoting consensus. Can I just say, I just, I brought the graph, right? I mean, can I just... <laughs> I'll give you a lesson graph. if you want. <laughs> I could give you a... Can you go back to the middle of the graph there? Yeah. The, the... <clears throat> that graph. Yeah, the peak and... I know you may try to argue with that, Cox later said quite vehemently, but you can't. Except Roberts did argue by proposing that the data had been corrupted by an international conspiracy led by NASA. To people on Team Science, Cox had delivered a knockout blow. To everyone else, who was using tools that the anti-science movement had long ago branded as inherently flawed. Facts are impotent when people don't agree on what they are. It's apparent that in the war on pseudoscience and misinformation, we're at a crippling disadvantage. We take up arms with logic, facts and printed graphs, while our opponents use powerful narratives, appeals to emotion and outright conspiracy theory. If it were a game of football, sorry, soccer, we'd be passing and dribbling downfield with our feet, while anti-vaxxers were scooping up the ball with their hands and running at speed. We'd be in for a thrashing. Socrates passed on his method, but he also passed on his notion of ignorance, that the truly wise appreciate the limits of their knowledge. So, how can scientists and skeptics better harness the power of storytelling? Most readers can easily recall the Nike slogan, the McDonald's mascot, and the Apple logo. The clue is in the name. They've been emblazoned on our brains, not because they confer a survival advantage or because they reflect an irrefutable law of physics, but because marketing departments understand how to maximize visibility through storytelling. By exploiting the same vulnerabilities in human attention, fake news has been designed to spread further than the truth on social media, reaching considerably more people in less time. Until we learn to embrace the power of narrative, I feel we'll be hopelessly outgunned by those who already have. Constructing stronger narratives will help us reach beyond our esoteric bubble of science cognoscente. We tend to think of facts and stories as antithetical, but they needn't be. We can tell true stories. For instance, I began the article by recounting the rise of snake oil in the Old West through the tireless work of Clark Stanley. It would have been easy to summarize this chronologically, only paying due regard to sterile facts and historical accounts. But stories make facts more vivid, bringing them to life in the broader context. With a narrative account, the reader can unearth the facts organically, rather than having them thrust upon them like they were back in the classroom. I like to think of stories as a mode of transit. Science is an intellectually heavy pursuit, weighed down by the very product of its processes. Meanwhile, narratives lighten the load, making those facts and figures easier to bear. Storytelling is the Soyuz capsule to our payload specialist the Large Hadron Collider to our subatomic particles, the pipette to our microbial cells. A simple story increases the likelihood that important information will reach its destination. It isn't something that comes naturally to literal-minded people such as me. Even the best of our ilk, Dawkins, Tyson, Sagan, despite their natural ability to communicate through one medium or another, 
have worked tirelessly over many decades to perfect their delivery. It's a craft like any other. Effective psychom is no more likely to reveal itself than fluency in a new language, sporting prowess or competency with a musical instrument. It takes work. Nor is public-facing science without consequence. Just look at Sagan's example. A bona fide scientist, Sagan earned four degrees, including his doctorate, had hundreds of published papers to his name, and was a pioneer in interplanetary science, contributing to several NASA missions. And yet, after being nominated for membership to the National Academy of Sciences, recognition that few people deserved more, he was blackballed in the first round of voting, receiving half the Academy's votes when he needed two-thirds. The reason for the rejection? The Academy's deep-rooted disdain for popular public-facing scientists, something that's become known as the Sagan effect. In my experience, this stigma that popular scientists are somehow worse academics than those who don't engage in public discourse is alive and well. My doctoral studies reflected the typical student experience. I was poorly nourished and poorly paid. To cover my bills, I wrote for science magazines on health, pseudoscience and exercise training. That was until I was scorned by my advisor. He believed that, quote, real scientists were above communicating with the mainstream that we needn't lower ourselves to public discourse, and that Psycom was all style over substance. It's a stigma we must work to demolish for the good of science and for the good of the society it serves. Our substance could benefit from a little more style. Science is a process, a tool we use to establish objective truths about the world. It informs the decisions we make and the positions we take. But swathes of people don't value objective arguments, and for them, the data from scientific inquiry may not be enough to change policy, inform behaviour, or influence ideals. The politicisation of public health policy surrounding COVID-19 is all the evidence we need of this. With a better understanding of the mechanics of storytelling, scientists and sceptics can begin to bridge the gap between science and the public, between the lab and the layperson. Narrative can be the medium, storytelling the mode of delivery. And, with a little work, it's possible to make science accessible without compromising our intellectual integrity. National Academy, take note. After all, there's a battle going on for the public's limited attention. Our engagement methods must evolve if we're to stand a chance of prevailing. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this article, check out my book, The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science, Confronting Myths of the Health and Fitness Industry, published by Taylor and Francis. For more information on this and my other work, visit www.nbtiller.com.